we continue in our series on Colossians. We're in Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Colossians 3, 5 through 11. We'll read 1 through 11. But today we focus on 5 through 11. It's the call to put off or to uh, put to death those sins. Okay? So it reminds us of how much Christ has forgiven given us, right? Forgiveness should show in putting off, putting to death. Next week, we plan to look at God's renewing grace by his Holy Spirit. Today, you know more the fruit of forgiveness, repentance and forgiveness and faith. Next week, the renewing grace by his Holy Spirit, how that uh, enables us to put on. So... 5 through 11. But we'll, read, we'll begin reading at verse 1 as it ties in so closely. <clears throat> we hear God's word. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him. And glory. And then now you're going to see three commands put to death, put off, don't lie. Three very important commands. Verse 5 Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Your members here refers to your vices. Sometimes the vice is very closely connected to the parts of our body, right? Hands, eyes, and so on. Put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. And I put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So yeah, our, our focus here is treasuring, or you could say prizing, your new identity, your new image in Christ. That's really what Paul is getting at in this passage, but also we see in the, in the passage for next week, Lord willing. <clears throat> you know, that's the big word that you hear today. Don't you hear a lot about identity? Right? Your identity. My identity. As a matter of fact, we, what we hear today is you can identify yourself as to what you want to be. You can mutilate yourself. You can change your gender. You can deface yourself because you can identify as to what you want to be. I was just hearing this speaker, a certain speaker this past week, and he said, you are you yourself are the one you worship. That's what it is. And you talk about my identity is most important. You begin to worship yourself as the most important person on the earth. And that means many things. You can rebel 
any way you like in order to pursue your identity. Especially today, you know, many, especially even young people, are being brainwashed to take advantage of their sinful nature, exploit it, make the most of it, to love self over God and over others. That's why we read the commandments this morning, love God above all and others as yourself. But this is the opposite, right? Trying to find yourself in a way that you love self over God and others. And that's why it shouldn't be surprising that the gospel of Jesus Christ, this person says, is so objectionable, is so offensive. Why is that? Because one of the first things the gospel of Jesus Christ says about your and my identity is what? It's sinful. Your identity is sinful. And the cross of Jesus Christ, you know, is an absolute offense to that identity. The fact that there was to be a cross at all shows how sinful your identity is and my identity is. So sinful that he had to die for who I really am. And it's not something good. And this is what Paul is saying to the believers in Colossae. <laughs> he said, when you repented, when you denied yourself, when you put yourself to death, and, and you have Christ, he said, you died with him, and you were raised with him to a new life, a new identity, a true identity. We live in a world of lies. Right? And Christ resurrects us from the world of lies to the truth, a world of truth, new tr the truth in Christ. And that's why, you know, in the world that puts so much pressure on us to talk like them, to think like them, to converse like them, we have to remember to treasure the identity that Christ has given you. Never be ashamed. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to say be proud about it. No, we ought to humble ourselves and thank God for his amazing grace and love that made us, that gave us that new identity in Christ. And it's because of that, when we prize that identity, there's two things in this passage that really bring up very powerfully this morning. That is the call to put to death, to put off. If you really treasure your identity in Christ, Paul is saying, put off, put to death. That's what we see in verses 5 through 8. And then in 9 through 11, I don't think that's really continuing the list of sins there, although there is a sin there that's mentioned. But the second thing we see there is strategizing for victory. This is the strategy for victory in a world that wants us to think like them, that wants us to, to use their language but no, we strategize for victory as God's church in this world. So put to death. That's the call here. Put to death. Having died with Christ, I mean spiritually, having died with Christ, Paul says here, therefore put to death. Death? Sounds a little severe to me, doesn't it to you? No compromise whatsoever whatsoever with your sins. 
There's only one answer, kill it. Don't compromise with it. Don't pander to it. Don't sweet talk to it. Kill it. That's what Paul, so Paul is saying. See verse 3? Therefore, put to death. Very strong language. Put to death your members, I mean, your vices, some things, the things that we use with our, through our own body, which are on earth. Fornication, list five things. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. No compromise. No negotiations. No whisperings back and forth with sin. It's simply a strong appeal. Put it to death. Put to death, therefore. Show no mercy towards it. Absolutely no mercy. It's very strong here. But that raises the question, if you died with Christ already, why does Paul say, putting it, put it to death? If I died with him, why the command put it to death? Well, in Christ, remember, sin no longer is the master. Sin is no longer the king. Sin no longer reigns. It's no longer the dominant king in the believer's life. Okay? Sin no longer remains. Maybe this is a good way to remember this. Sin no longer, re sin no, no longer reigns, but now sin simply remains. There's still the presence of sin in believers while they're still living in this world. It's no longer king. Christ is king. But we still have to deal with the remaining or the remnants of sin in our daily lives. And that's a battle, harsh battle. It still needs to be put to death. But you know why Paul gives us command here is because Christ has given the power, the strength to put that to death. That's not in her own strength. It's in his strength that we can obey this command and kill it. Put to death fornication. What's fornication? Fornication is broader than just um, uh, committing adultery. Committing adultery presupposes a married relationship. But fornication is having sex outside of the marriage relationship. And the Bible is so clear. The Bible is so clear that belongs within the lifelong marriage relationship between one husband and one wife. So not until marriage, not outside of marriage, and not without marriage. By the way, that word fornication comes from the word pornea. And where do we get that What word comes from pornea? It's the word pornography. Right? That word pornography. Kill it. Put it to death. Otherwise, it will kill you. That's how, that's how strong that command is. You put it to death, otherwise it will slay you. It's, it's that powerful. Paul makes a strong appeal here. You know, fornication doesn't just happen. It, just all, it doesn't just all of a sudden happen. Paul talks about the next four sins that kind of lead up to that act of fornication. It's a physical action. What is it? 
Well, for there to be fornication, for it to be happening already, there needs to be already uncleanness. That's the next word, the second word there. Uncleanness is already there for it to occur, uncleanness in the heart. And what's uncleanness fed by? Passion, the third word, passion. And by an evil desire. What is that evil desire? It's a kind of an uncontrolled urge, uh, passion. And these passions come from where? Evil desires in the heart. And that's what covetousness is. Covetousness, coveting is an illicit desire. It's a sinful desire. Here it's called an evil desire. And what is that? It's idolatry. It's, boy, Paul is so clear here. It's idolatry. You think about it, what you love the most in your life is your God. What do you, I mean, what, what is it that we love the most in our life? That's our God. Okay? It's what we worship. Um, you know, at the recent exam of a candidate, the question was asked, can one be a Christian and a homosexual at the same time? Can one be a Christian and a homosexual at the same time? No, can't because that's denying Christ and his ways, right? Um, a Christian is called to put his desire for homosexuality to death. Put it to death. Does that mean Christians never struggle with it? Christians men struggle with it, but there's only one command, right? Put it to death. Allow for no excuses. Give it no wiggle room. Thomas Watson, he's a Puritan, he says it this way. He who sets a high value on Christ will put his feet on the neck of his sins. I think that's a great quote. I'll say that again. He who sets, his, who, he who sets a high value on Christ will set his feet on the neck of his sins. Are you finding the strength of God's power? Are you finding strength in God's power to put sin to death? Well, Paul would say this. Paul would say that perhaps maybe you are frustrated seeking to put sin to death in your own strength. But the power to put sin to death is not in our own strength. We will fail. Our strength will fail us. The only one who gives us the power, who enables us to do that, is the one who died and rose again from the dead. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. We seek his power. Romans 8.13 says it this way. If by the spirit you put to death. What's that? If by the spirit. He's the agent. You put to death the deeds of your body. What's it say? You will live. You will live. I know that in response to putting to death, the pressure from our society to think otherwise is enormous. We want to fit in. But a new life in Christ does not allow us to fit in. We're just kind of like two parallel societies, two, two identities, one that's old and decrepit and crusty, the other one that's beautiful and good and truthful. Peter says it this way, they think it's strange 
that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Verse 6 and 7 really gives two incentives. Why? To put it to death. To put to death these things. First one is the wrath of God. And he's talking about the wrath of God on the unbelievers. When you see the wrath of God on the unbelievers today, you see the moral confusion, the moral chaos, right? The misery. It's all expressions already. Now the wrath of God being upon society. It talks about here in verse 7 or verse 6, right? Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. We are the children of God, right? We're called sons and daughters of God. So I'm not talking about sons and daughters of God here. The sons of disobedience, those are the unbelievers. God's wrath. What is God's wrath? We have to be very careful to think about it in a biblical way. God's wrath is his response. We'll call it his holy response to the wickedness of man whom he made in his image in order to glorify him. Okay? It's his holy response to the wickedness in man whom he made in his image. For what purpose? To glorify him. You know, the wounding of God's gracious love, the rejection of his mercy, is simply, he cannot but respond with his wrath. He is holy. And so that's the first incentive, God's coming wrath on unbelievers. Wow, it's real. It's a reality. That's the first thing, the first incentive. Paul's saying, just look out there. See it. You see it. And it's coming in a more powerful way. But the second incentive is in verse 7. And what is that? God's mercy on your lives. By nature, we're no different than the society out there. But notice God's mercy in your life. First of all, God's wrath out there, but God's mercy upon you. Look at verse 7. In which you yourselves once walked, and you lived in them. So as you were living in this kind of lifestyle, this uh, image-defacing kind of lifestyle, you were walking in it, Paul says. That was once our life. You used to be that way. But by God's mercy in Christ, he brought you out of that old, old life. And he gave you a new identity. He washed you. He renewed you. He put new clothes on you. And he says, you're mine, O kings and queens, sons and daughters. And he is so merciful, he will continue to give you strength and the power to put to death those things in your life. Never, never doubt him for that. Never, ever, ever. The problem is sometimes we lack faith and we start looking to our own strength. And then things become very, very, very difficult. You know, you see in Christ, his power at work. You think of the body of Christ, his power at work in putting creation back together again. 
as it once was in its original form, putting creation back together and you see it in the body of Christ. And yeah, not only in the area of sexual conduct, that's the first five vices here, but also in the area of speech, our talk. You know, you think about it, I was thinking about that. Why does Paul talk about the area of sex and speech? Because I think it's those two areas of life that reveal the ugliness of sin most openly, most terribly. And you see verse 8 continuing this way. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. And he mentions the next five. Put off what? Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Whereas on the first list, right, fornication is the outward act of all the five, four that follow. In the second list, the last one, your mouth, is the action by which the previous five feed into it. Okay? These sins, these five sins, may be more common, right? Or at least we see that more among, even among the people of God, among God's people. And sometimes it doesn't seem as serious. You think they're as serious as the first ones? Well, that's not the view of Scripture if we think differently. They're as serious as the first list. The command is equally forceful, equally forceful for Christians. Put off, <laughs> put off. It's the same effect, right? Get rid of them. All those sins related to the mouth. Chapter three of, J of James, you ever read that? The most powerful member in your body is the tongue. The tongue. What does he call it? A fire. A world of iniquity. And then he says in 3 verse 8, it defiles the whole body, sets on nature, sets on fire the whole course of nature, and is set on fire by hell itself. The tongue. And so verse 8 begins with anger and wrath. What's anger? <clears throat> anger is like a fire, right? <clears throat> Maybe it smolders within the heart. But if that anger intensifies, it blows up into a rage, and we would call that wrath. That's what wrath is. And James 1.21 says, The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Here, saying no wrath, but then God is a God of wrath. So how do you explain the difference? Well, man's wrath is different from the wrath of God that we see in verse 6. You see, God's wrath is not so much an emotion or not so much of an angry frame of mind. God's wrath is his settled opposition of his holiness towards evil. It's consistent. He is consistent with his standard. But with human anger and wrath, it's different. It's often emotional. It's sinful. Right? And notice what comes with that often. With anger and wrath comes malice. I know that's a very special word. We don't necessarily use the word malice a lot. It's the third word in the list here. But malice is simply what? It's the desire to hurt others. 
And what's the easiest way to hurt others? The mouth. The mouth is sometimes the easiest way to hurt others and put them down. Him, her. I remember the words growing up. I think maybe some of you children might know these words. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. You agree with that? Sometimes I think I'd rather have a stick break of my bone than to hear some of the words that have been spoken. Words can hurt terribly. Words can almost kill a person. And, and you could say almost deface the image of a person. It's saying things. It's like slant. Uh, sorry. It's um, put it this way. Words are sometimes more hurtful than stones, no doubt about it. And that, of course, malice also leads to blasphemy. That's the next word here. Now, it doesn't, blasphemy here does not mean taking God's name in vain. That's one of the meanings and the most prominent meaning in Scripture. But blasphemy here has more the sense of slandering another person, saying something that will try to harm that person's reputation. That's in the world. We can expect it. It should not surprise us that it's in the world. But Paul says, no, no, not in the body of Christ. No, no, put that off. It doesn't belong there. It doesn't belong. It just, it's not consistent with who you are in your new identity with, with Jesus Christ. Slander is an attack. It's so close to blasphemy in the sense that, in, in taking God's name in vain, in that slander is an attack on the image of God in a person. That's why it can be so closely translated as blasphemy. James 3 verse 8 says that the tongue, with the tongue we curse men who have been made in the image of God. So yeah, and finally, that leads to verse the, the fifth one, verse 8. It mentions filthy language out of your mouth. What's filthy language? Dirty. Dirty talk. Obscene talk. Telling an off-color joke, a dirty joke, or talk, that belongs to the broken identities. That belongs to the world of lies out there. Doesn't belong to God's people. A racial slur, putting down another race, exalting, herself, exalting one when putting down another, degrading another person. Again, you see how your new identity in Christ, the Holy Spirit begins to shape our language. It begins to shape our talk. And Paul says, those things will come to you. Those things you're going to struggle with. But just remember when it happens, you ah, put it off. Don't even go there. Don't even start there. Put it off. The words, but now, you think of the words, but now in verse 8. But now shows a change in your identity. What once was is now no longer so. You've died with Jesus, you arose with him, and he gives you the power to put it off. We rest in his strength. Are you finding strength in him to put these, you could say, speech from your mouth that's not according to the image of God in Christ? That's not... Um, proper 
your own strength will fail you. Paul in Colossians 1 verse 11 speaks of being strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. That's a famous phrase. You could post that on the wall. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power in terms of putting sin to death, putting it off. Colossians 2 6 reminds us we saw a couple weeks ago. Therefore, having received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. Treasure it. That's how you treasure it. How do you, how do you know that you don't take your new identity Christ in Christ for granted? How do you know that? It'll show in your strenuous effort to put to death those things, to put off those things. That's how you treasure it. That's how we chose it. It's been very, very meaningful to us that Christ has washed me. He's clothed me. He's given me a new identity in Christ. By grace alone in Christ, without our deserving it, earned by his finished work on the cross, and now taking hold of that new life, we put to death. We put off. And that leads us briefly, shorter point, a strategy for victory in verses 9 through 11. And uh, this, is a, this is a big point, but not a long point, verses 9 through 11. Christ has the power to put our lives back in good order. And you think about the Colossians, right? They came from all kinds of backgrounds, idols, sexual morality, and so forth. But in 2 verse 5, Paul says he speaks of the good order of the Colossian congregation. He speaks of their steadfast faith in Christ. They were a powerful witness of the, of the death and resurrection of Christ in their lives. Christ brings beauty of what was one time ugly. He brings order out of chaos. I think of, uh, who's this lady? Former um, lesbian. Rosaria Butterfield. She hated Christians. And until she was drawn in by the love and the hospitality of believers, and the Lord used that to change her life. As a matter of fact, she put to death her lesbianism. And what happened? She got married to a man, a man who was a pastor. And she had her own family. You see something of the power of Christ. I give this as one illustration. There's many illustrations. The power of Christ's death and resurrection at life in a person like that. Beauty, truth, goodness. That's the real life. That's the true life in contrast to a life of lies. Some argue here that in verse 9, Paul is not adding um, to the list of speech behavior that must be changed. And I agree with that. He's not adding to the list. But what he's giving here is a strategy for gaining victory over those sins we are to put to death and to lay aside. And how do we do that? Don't lie to one another. We'll go back to it in a second. But what is he saying here? Paul's is saying, you died with Christ. You were raised with him. You received new life in him. And now there's been a radical change in your identity. Your identity is was, was false before, but now it's true. It's real. You have a true identity. In verses 9 and 10, he says, since you have put off the old man with his deeds... It's like having put off the old 
worn out, shabby, embarrassing set of clothes. Maybe sometimes we wear clothes that are so embarrassing, shabby and old. Well, having put off those old clothes, says Apostle Paul, having put off the old man with his deeds, the old clothes we were born with by nature, by our sinful nature, the old clothes from Adam, you've put off Adam. You're no longer identified with that old Adam, with that rebellious race of Adam. You've put on the new man, like a brand new, smart-looking set of clothes. Now, mind you, you didn't put that on yourself. Christ gave it to you. He says, put it on. And having put it on, priceless, beautiful, orderly, it makes sin stink. It makes sin look terribly ugly when you see the kind of righteousness that Christ earned for us on the cross and puts it on us. And he says, you're my child. You're my son and daughter. You don't belong to those sons of disobedience. Yeah, you were first born of Adam, but now afterwards you've been born again through Christ by his spirit. That's what baptism in Christ signifies. It's a way with the old. Baptism water signifies the old clothes are taken off and the new clothes are placed on. See verse 10, who is renewed in knowledge. The believer's new nature, you could say, resembles a growing plant. We're not perfect by any means of the imagination, right? We have to grow consistent with our identity. But we're being renewed by whom? By the Holy Spirit, growing in its life, growing in its vigor. To what end? According, this is the goal, according to the image of him who created him. Right? In Christ, by God's grace, the Holy Spirit is restoring our image. He's fixing our image to the way that he originally created it in the garden. That's the true self. That's the true person. That's the true identity. So now the question, how is the command, do not lie to one another, a pattern for victory over those sins described in verses 5 through 8? Well, here's the strategy. Don't let anyone in the congregation or anywhere else say fornication does not matter. It's a lie. It's a lie. Don't let anyone say that evil desires or coveting does not matter. That's a lie. Don't let anyone say that slander or filthy talk doesn't matter because everybody else does it. That's a lie. Don't let anyone here deny the coming wrath of God. That's a lie. Don't let anyone undermine your love, your faith in Christ and his power by suggesting that the sins of verses five and eight, ah, you know what, everyone else does it, so it's not so serious. That's a lie. Let us speak to one another truthfully. That's what's consistent with the image of God in man. You know, it's interesting. The very world, the very society we live in today is trying to silence the truth. You may say anything, just don't say the truth. You might be, just this past week, someone was just sharing something, was arrested for it in the GTA saying the truth, not going to get into that, but saying the truth. 
And why is it that society tries to silence the truth? Because they know that the truth challenges the lie. And yeah, that may cost you your friendships. It may cost you to stand out. It may cost you an opportunity. But you know what? Christ is building a new society. And he's been building a new society for the last 2,000 years. You could say since the time of Adam and Eve, really. But he's building a new society, not merely a parallel society. Okay, here's the new society. Here's the old society. No, he's building a society which is replacing the old society. His new society is growing, is emerging. And the beauty begins to show itself in even bigger and more powerful ways. And that's why Paul says, it's in the body of Christ, which is replacing the old society. The old is passing away, Scripture says. The new has come. It's in the body of Christ where you see the power of Christ at work, the power of the cross, putting creation, the newness of creation, all back together again in our broken world. A new society, a new humanity, a new people. See verse 11? You're never going to find this anywhere in the world except in the church where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free. Not going to get into all the meanings of those words, but simply put, it means whatever nationality you are, whatever color you are, whether you're rich or poor, high or low, from Christian background or non-Christian background, what is it that unites us? Christ. Our identity in Christ. That's how Paul concludes here. Christ is all and in all. It's all about him. Christ is the only answer to the acute problem of sin and rebellion and image-defacing, mutilating society that we live in. The only answer, Christ. The only answer is the cross. Death to the sinful self. We must die to the sinful self. Christ does that. He died. When we believe in him, we die with him. And he enables us to repent and believe on Christ. And he puts his new clothes on us. Beautiful clothes. Not because we deserve it, but because of what he has done. He restores to you a new identity. And so treasure it. Prize it. That's how you do it. Putting off, putting to death. And that way we can truly sing too. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Amen.